So the possibility of phishing on Slack is endless. Like you can just sign up for an account in some, you know, organization's public Slack, change your picture and name to impersonate the executive director, and then start causing chaos. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Mike Marotti, is a founder and the CEO of Personified, a firm that provides managed IT services to progressive organizations. Mike's career took him to Blue State Digital as IT director and from there to the Warren for President campaign running IT and cybersecurity. And now he has turned what was a side hustle, helping like-minded campaigns and organizations into a political IT company. I asked Mike about his career and about the challenges of building an enterprise in the progressive political space. If you're interested in political technology and entrepreneurship, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Mike at Personified. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Nathaniel. I am Mike Marotti. My pronouns are he, his. I am currently the founder and CEO of Personified. We are an IT and cybersecurity provider for the progressive left. So we work with campaigns, nonprofits, and also mission-aligned organizations to run their IT and cybersecurity programs. I've been in IT at this point about 15 years. Started out working with computers, and then over the last eight years or so, I got involved in kind of the more progressive political IT space. I reside in Connecticut with my wife and three senior dogs. Three senior dogs. Three senior dogs. How old is a senior dog? (laughs) Well, our dogs are 15, 13, and 10, so they're getting up there. It feels sometimes like a doggy day camp. Do they race and do they finish in order of age? Uh, no, they, they do nothing useful. They just complain and run our lives, but we love them very much regardless. Got it. Well, doesn't sound like a terrible life. Are you a person who went to college? I am a person that went to college. My college degree has no relevancy to what I'm doing. So I went to a state school in Connecticut for construction management. My family comes from a labor background. My dad's the president of a labor union. My prior life was construction and in high school and in college, I was like a punk rock kid and wanted to play music and shunned everything, capitalism. And as the reality of adult life dawned on me, I realized I liked working with computers a lot more than I liked working in construction. So I actually ended up at an Apple store my senior year of college. And I realized, wow, everything I have worked towards over the last four years 
was probably not the track I wanted to be on. So I ended up pursuing an IT track because I liked computers and I always had experience working with them and fixing with them. And that was kind of my passion to begin with. What union did your dad run? He runs Local One Connecticut Bricklayers Union. He's got about 1,600 members and he's been uh, running that for um, 25 or so years. Elected position, very impressive. I got to give it to him. (laughs) My experience with bricklayers is they're very strong. Yes, they're very gruff, very strong, very capable people. Clearly, I was not cut from that cloth. And so it always felt a little bit of friction trying to work in that industry and and make myself useful. And, you know, there's always that kind of uh, stigma of being someone's kid, you know. So I really kind of had to do it my own way. And and computers were the way I knew how. So it sounds like if you had a union president father, you had a there's a political streak to your family. A little bit. Yeah. You know, certainly not involved in anything I'd really overtly consider political, but my parents are both very progressive. They're surrounded by people who frequently are not, including family and friends. It's very interesting to watch them. I think as they've gotten older, they've actually gotten more progressive, which is the reverse of what I traditionally see with people as they age. So yeah, I think that the values were always imbued to me. And I guess I didn't really realize that until later in life. What does your mom do? My mom's a uh, comes from a nursing background. She works for a, I guess, a care provider as a case manager for them. She came from healthcare, and you know, my parents were very young when they had me, and just kind of figured out their career paths to support their family. So they did what they had to do, and I'm grateful for for at least having the opportunity to do this. And and uh, you know, if nothing else, having the opportunity to work in fields that I didn't enjoy and, and clearly weren't going to work out that really informed my decisions. So. Were you one of those people that gives advice behind the counter at Apple? I wa- So surprisingly, I wasn't. I get that a lot. Were you like the genius at Apple? And I think like that was intriguing to me, but it's actually very interesting, especially in retrospect. I was always the salesperson. So I was on the sales floor selling computers. I had really liked the experience of someone at an Apple store. You get people who walk in with their computer and they've paid all this money for this device. So they kind of just throw it at you and they're like, this thing's not working and you need to fix it right now. And I really enjoyed engineering those interactions and trying to bring them over to our side and just make them like me. I think that was the goal. And I I found I was effective at that. The reason why I enjoyed sales is because I was always honest with people. I would never really push the like metrics and the Apple care and everything that they trained us on. I would just tell people like, here's what you need. Here's what you don't need. Take it or leave it. And that seemed to work well. I find myself, especially with Personified, using those same skills. So it's really interesting to see how it comes full circle, because I never would have knew how to do any of that if it wasn't for that random decision I made one day to work there. So Yeah, a lot of life is like that, isn't it? One thing leads to another. It is. Very strange. Yeah, same with my career progression. It's just like a lot of serendipitous occurrences and just kind of like always saying yes was my thing. I was big into saying yes and figuring out how to do it after. So, What's Create the Group? company? What's the Morpheus Media, this section of your life? Yeah. So that's that was an interesting time. This was back in 2010. Back then, it was a sane thing to do to go on Craigslist to look for work and new jobs. Seems unfathomable now with LinkedIn and all that. But back then, it was okay. And I was at a junction. So the story goes, I met my now wife. I lived in Connecticut. She was going to school in New York. We ended up moving in together after six months, which was a trial by fire. And I'm you know, happy it worked out. I had transferred Apple stores because I knew I needed a job. It was just the easiest thing. 
And I was kind of at that point in my career where like, you can decide to stick with Apple and be a manager and like go slowly up the retail chain with very little progress. Or I was like, I could see what else is out there. I know I like computers, maybe like IT or sort of like a help desk position before I really knew what that was, would be a good fit. And I randomly one day decided to go on Craigslist. I looked at LinkedIn. I saw a post that was like, they want like this exact experience. Uh, I can do that. And so I applied uh, and it was Morpheus Media. You know, I took like a $15,000 pay cut, which for, you know, the age I was 25 or whatever was unfathomable, but I knew it was the right decision and we had the means to, you know, skirt by. So I did it. The guy um, was run by a, a family or husband and wife uh, and uh, Shannon and Alex. And this guy, Toby, hired me as like my first IT hire. I actually still work for him for his organization like 15 years later. But I got in as like the bottom of the barrel, you know, IT support, fixing printers. It was just like a two-person show, me and my boss. And I had a really great boss, Marius, who was a Romanian guy, came over here probably 10 years prior and very soft-spoken, but like essentially gave me a college education over the five years I worked there. Like he would sit me down weekly and like draw things on the whiteboard for me and explain concepts to me. And I was like this cocky mid-20s, like know-it-all IT guru thinking I knew how to do everything. And it was through that experience that I really started learning about this and getting my kind of sea legs in the industry and, and figuring out things that I saw that were being done well and things that I saw that were not being done well. The company had a crazy trajectory. They actually got bought by that company, create the group. Eventually, it just kind of ran into the ground for a number of reasons, got taken over by their board. And I was the person that turned the lights off at the place. That was Friday. And at the following Monday, I think I had started at Blue State, which was like that next chapter of my life. So very coincidental, I would say. I've known a lot of people who were in different parts of the IT space, different skill sets. What do you think makes a good IT person at different levels? I probably have a different view. I tend to have different views than the industry at large. I think the number one skill is people skills. I actually think that, you know, I think in larger enterprises where there are multiple teams and like non-user facing roles, so like engineers working on behind the scenes stuff, things like that, that's obviously less important. But for the IT world I come from, you have to treat it like customer service. That's what it is. Even though your clients are internal at your own company, they're still your clients and you're still providing customer service to them. And so um, the kind of people skills, the soft skills are what I hire for and just kind of a sense of urgency. It doesn't work well, especially in political IT to like drag issues out over a series of days. People want to not have to think about this stuff. They just want it fixed. And when they have a problem, they want to email you and or Slack you and get get a fix. So those are kind of the skills that I hire for because I think the technical stuff is all stuff you can train and it's all stuff people pick up. That is kind of what I'm looking for when I'm looking for a fit at our organization. When you say you moved to Blue State, are you talking about Blue State Digital, the political tech company? I am. Yep. I was there for six years, I think, total. Yep. Tell me about that experience. What was it like? Yeah, uh, it, it crazy ride. So yeah, I had fortunately had a coworker at that old firm I mentioned had recommended me randomly. They were looking for an IT director. Their old IT director transitioned out. I got a recommendation just to their recruiter for someone who could potentially fill the role. Again, serendipitous thing. As our company, we knew people got their end dates and all that. Um, I was put in touch with Blue State and I had a couple job offers, I remember, 
And they were mostly just like regular agencies, nothing special about them, just selling marketing services. And I had really aggressive recruiters trying to talk me out of going to Blue State. It was like, they're an email shop. They're antiquated. They're not going to be around in five years. But I really was drawn to the politics. And I was always a political person. I was always progressive. Again, like coming from the like punk rock thing, that was always kind of part of me. And, you know, trying to reconcile that with the financial realities of living in New York City was tough. But even though the pay was less than some of the other offers I had, it was like, it felt like using my skills for good in a very small way. Like, yeah, I wasn't doing client work or anything like that, but I was helping enabling the people to do it. So I was excited by their like political bend more so than I realized at the time. And so I started work there. They were, I want to say like 250 in size when I came on board, large organization for me who was managing IT for like 80. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of put my, my time in and my work in, I was big on being patient. There was some staff turnover on the team. Uh, the current staffing wasn't quite working out. That was something that was flagged to me. So it kind of made slow moves to get things to like where I wanted to see them now that I had a little bit of agency to design the team and the offering and all that. So it was great. They were working on all these cool things. I realized they had done the Obama campaigns. It was like a pretty intimidating opportunity for me. But I just did the thing where you show up and do the good work and build relationships and all that. And after a couple of years, I think like a pivotal thing, that decision we made was that Slack, love it or hate it, was like just coming out as a tool for organizations. And so we made a pretty early gamble on Slack at Blue State to bring everybody on it. And I started offering like tech support through Slack because it was like a real-time response there were offices all over the country. It was a good experience for people. So that kind of started forming the like model of IT that I got really comfortable with and we started selling. And then after a couple of years, you know, eventually got closer with Joe Rosebars, their CEO. There was this crazy big opportunity to essentially like work with a Warren campaign, which was just getting off the ground. They had someone in an IT role from the Senate campaign. And my role was really just to like senior senior advisor, like tell kind of like work with this guy, a uh, very nice guy, to kind of model the IT program for the presidential after Blue State, because Joe felt like the model was working. He wanted to see that for the presidential campaign. That is when I kind of got introduced to them. And then the IT director found out his wife was pregnant, and he did the same thing and left the presidential. That is eventually how I got directly roped in to that, which was my next move after Blue State. You were, I assume, at Blue State during the Trump Clinton campaign where cybersecurity became a big thing nationally, politically. Did you have any insight into that? How did that affect how you thought about politics and IT? The specter of those incidents still haunts IT and especially the progressive political space because, yeah, that was huge news in addition to everything else going on. How that affected me, there was one component of like the exchange server that was being run and these like high level political operatives like Hillary Clinton were running like mail servers out of their basement. Like that was actually an okay thing prior to 2016 and that event happening. That is a big part of just that event and how it went down is a big part of why we're really cloud first. And I'm constantly trying to push people to the cloud, to Google, to Microsoft, using cloud-based tools and away from their like on-premise servers that they operate themselves because exactly of that issue. There's a lot of risk when you do that. You accept a lot of responsibility and Google and Microsoft and Apple and those kind of companies are just much better equipped to 
how's your data? Barring privacy concerns, I'm not talking about that, just purely from security. But then the John Podesta event, which after hearing more about it and understanding more of that, was no one in particular's fault. It was a reality of overworked campaign staff who said one thing and meant one thing and the you know recipients received another. That kind of put the fear in me of these Gmail accounts, which are supposedly super safe and I'm pushing everyone towards, just got breached in like the biggest way in campaign history. And so that put a lot of fear in me into just like focusing on the cybersecurity posture and like layering additional security onto Google, additional measures. I started building our, what we use now is like the Google Workspace security runbook back then because I was terrified and I was terrified it was going to happen to us. And it was a great motivator to really start getting into cybersecurity in a big way. That was kind of actually my, my pivot into that was, was largely based on that. Did you ever run into Brian who set up Hillary's home server? I never did. I still feel like a political newbie. I never really met any of the big players, but certainly a legendary a name in the space. Yes. Okay. So tell me about Warren. That is not just any campaign to land on as your first role like that, or sounds like it. Tell me about what it felt like. Yeah. Again, I think my like guiding principle in life was to never say no, try to find a way to make it work. There was a big decision point for for me and, and my wife at that point. So we were living in Brooklyn. We had three dogs. Um, she had a full-time job plus like four consulting jobs. There was no way we were, we were relocating to Boston. And that's kind of a requirement. You can't really run a presidential IT team remotely. You kind of have to be there. So we went back and forth a lot about that decision of like, is this the right decision for us? Understanding that it was going to be a year of, of possibly more of chaos. But there, there was a big opportunity there. And, uh, you know, again, it was like, I think what drove me, motivated me most was just the ability to use my skills to further something like Senator Warren's campaign, which was monumental to me and someone who I had immense respect for. And so the opportunity to just get involved and, you know, use my skill set was very exciting. So ultimately, we landed on the decision that I should do it. I found an apartment in, actually, my wife found an apartment in Boston with uh, some 20-something-year-old. She was finishing out college. It was like having a roommate again. It was super funny for me, getting in fights about the shower head and things like that. I commuted basically four days a week. I worked up there. I lived there. Jess, my wife, held it down in, in New York. And then I would come back on weekends and hang out. And we did that for a little over a year. It was a pretty brutal grind. It was a lot of work, a lot of stress. Certainly had no idea what I was getting into on a presidential. It just felt like another opportunity. Turns out it's very different than that. And there's a lot that goes with it. But it was the most exciting thing in my career I had ever done. Like this was a super impactful role. I got to meet Senator Warren and Bruce and even fixing their printer was a thrill and helping them with their Wi-Fi at home and getting to build relationships with them was incredible. Joe had told me I was needed. I wanted to be of service and pay back to everything they had offered me in terms of opportunities. And so it was a really wild ride. And it was constantly being faced with decision points that I didn't really know what the right decision was. Like I had one idea of how a boiler room works and very clearly everyone else had a different idea. One of the things that made me successful on the campaign was just like understanding my role and my position, not understanding politics, not knowing any of this stuff and just sitting in the room and listening. Like they weren't going to do it my way. I wanted to do it their way and try to support them in that. And so I just ended up learning about all of those things one by one sequentially as the campaign moved along. 
And in the end, we were able to deliver on on all of it. The IT in the end looked very much like Blue State, as you can imagine. So, well, well, tell me about some of that wild ride with some specificity. Like, what kind of things did you have to do that you had to learn about along the way? There was all the standard kind of IT work, which is the tech support, the onboarding and procurement. Um, you know, I had someone in that role, Natalia, who had worked the Senate, so she had already had experience with this and really was my guiding light for a lot of this. I work with her at Personified. She heads up our IT operations. And she's one of those people that just nails it every time. She like never drops the ball. And she was a great wealth of information and just like pointing me in the right direction. So there's all the regular IT stuff, tech support, you know, system administration accounts, all the boring stuff. There's the cybersecurity piece, which was exciting for me. That was like getting to work with the DNC, and Bob Lord, who was the CISO at the time, and they were very generous with their time, especially given the slate of candidates that were running in the primary. And so I learned a lot from them. Great resources, checklists, just getting me acclimated to the posture and what we were looking at in terms of risk. And then just responding to things as they happen. I'm grateful the campaign never got hacked or breached or anything like that, but certainly people were being targeted personally on their personal devices and accounts. And so I got involved with a lot of that. I really kind of blurred the line and I wasn't so hard about like, I'm not helping you because this isn't a work thing. It was very clear then and abundantly clear now that largely the threat actors are not going to target work accounts or campaign accounts. They're going to target personal accounts and devices and work their way in through that access. So I got a lot of experience just helping people generally with cybersecurity from a personal perspective. And then I got involved in all the threat response as well, which... I don't think I can share any specificity on some of the stories, but I was involved with Capitol Police and there was a standing senator that we were helping monitor. And a lot of the threats that people were reporting were coming in to me as the person kind of monitoring the inbox. There were a lot of really credible threats that we I'm very grateful we caught and reported and were able to act on very quickly. And one of the just mind boggling things to me is that Capitol Police, when they're especially protecting senators, they will be in Wyoming tomorrow if there's a threat. Like they will be knocking on a door within 24 hours and getting to witness that and be involved with that process is just fascinating to me. I had no experience with any of that. So I seem to remember a lot of just provisioning of phones for the campaign staff or computers or trying to get them to use the right places to store their information. Yeah, I mean, that's a good portion of it. The 2020 cycle was around the time, just coincidentally, that I think IT was fundamentally changing. It was a lot less focused on like corporate devices and locking down phones and things like that. For the most part, we didn't even provide cell phones to staff. That never ended up being an issue. What we focused on was good personal phone security, which is like run your updates, use your security keys on your accounts just like posturing people as much as possible to defend against that and just like report anything weird that they found. We spent a lot of time investigating emails and things like that, that people got with senior staff. Always there's that challenge of like, what can I tell them to do versus like, what do I kind of have to let them do and work around by 2020 people were comfortable with Google drive. You know, we ran the campaign on Google, which is kind of atypical. Mostly it's the Microsoft and PC world. We were mostly Google and Macs, And I think, the staff that we had in their backgrounds and the more tech savvy senior staff just kind of worked. And they were pretty good about storing everything in Google Drive and using their work computers and all the things I tried to like browbeat into people. I feel like it was a lot less IT coordination than like 
certainly 2016 and definitely before that. So how much did you vibrate to the ups and downs of the candidate in the polling and the uh, elections? I think probably less so than some others who were directly involved in the work, of course. But, you know, there was a pulse in HQ, like on the bad days, everyone felt it on the good days, everyone felt it. I remember the the debate where Senator Warren went after Bloomberg. People were just cheering, and it, you know, it was just really cool to see those really high points. Yeah, you're a little bit insulated from IT. You kind of got to keep a cool head no matter what's going on because you know you never know what's going to happen. But that was definitely a big part of it is celebrating jointly the wins and experiencing that. And of course, you know, when it didn't go the way we wanted it to, it was sad. But I still think. It was a great cycle. There were great conversations. I think a lot of those conversations that were being had on the campaign trail and in the debates are still conversations that are being had about, you know, equity and all of that. So when the campaign came to an end, it usually doesn't come to an end for for IT until well after other people. But tell me about the end and the transition, I assume, back to Blue State for a bit. I guess there was there's still no interruption in my involvement with the campaign, so I guess I'm still employed, though I switched to being a contractor instead of a W-2, but you're absolutely right. Like, they're functionally, especially for Senate cycles, which are longer, you kind of need a digital custodian. That's kind of what I consider myself for the, the Warren campaign. It's just like, there's all these weird requests that come in in the off years of, like, documents people were working on and all of that, so... A lot of what I worked on in the months after the campaign was just like the data archiving, the retention, making sure we were legally compliant, but also just kind of regularly purging data. So I ended up just being kind of the custodian for all that. It wound down and I'm still involved with the campaign. I still help them as they need it. Certainly looking at ramping back up. Yeah, it was kind of like for many months, just kind of keeping the lights on, making sure everything's working as it you know, the little footprint. And yeah, Blue State is is driving a lot of the strategy in the day-to-day, the fundraising, but I get to do my small part by making sure people have email accounts still. So <laughs> so what made you decide to uh, go out and start an actual company? Uh, you're calling it personified. I'm curious why it's called that. What's the f- sort of founding story there? The thing happened post-presidential that I didn't know about, but, you know, I, I know now is a phenomenon where When you have 1,200 people that work together and you do good work or your staff thinks you do good work, then a lot of people remember you and they'll reach back out. And so we had like, you know, an alumni group as most do. And I had a lot of people being IT, I happened to put together the alumni group and monitor it and administer it. So that was a benefit. But I had a lot of people reaching out to me over the following few months to help with their IT at their small organization. I forgot a key point, which is when I saw the campaign kind of going the direction it was headed, I had seen uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez's campaign team had reached out, or not reached out, but put out a notice about like jobs and roles and things on their team. I cold emailed them being like, hey, I don't fill any of these roles, but I do IT and cybersecurity. If you need help, just reach out. I'm here. I think they called me within 30 minutes. They're like, yeah, we need your help. Uh, We would love you to work with us and, and come on in. So I started working with Representative Ocasio-Cortez's team, still doing that, just running their IT and cybersecurity stuff. So I had the Senator Warren experience. I now had Representative Ocasio-Cortez. That was a couple marquee clients. And I started collecting smaller clients, you know, 10-person nonprofits who just needed somebody for hourly support. I went back to Blue State after for my day job, and this was kind of my side hustle. 
you get to that point where like, oh, this side hustle may actually overtake the full-time job. And so I started reaching that point around, I guess, the end of 2020. It also just so happened that the, I think three days after I got released from the campaign full-time, COVID lockdown started. And so spent a lot of time at home working remotely, wasn't pressure to be in the office. So I was able to juggle a lot of things more so than I was in the past. Towards the end of 2020, I realized there was something here. I probably had to make a decision in the next year on which way I wanted to go. The story of Personified is that I'm really bad at coming up with names. And so I riffed on a lot of different names. I think we were called like Panoptic at one point. Bad, bad names, just terrible branding. But the big trend at that time was this company, Electric.ai, which was like kind of overtaking the IT MSP space that we're now in. And they were advertising AI tools and chatbots and all this stuff to like streamline your IT program. And that was like part of my visceral reaction to that, which is like, IT is not an AI thing. It is a people thing. You need people in these roles. You need customer service. And that's really the point. And so Personified was a little bit of a reaction to that of like, we're not robots. We're real people. We're living and breathing tech and you can rely on us in that way. And that was all Jess's idea for that name. And once she said that out loud, we just knew that that was it. So that was the story of the name. When you left Blue State, like a lot of times, if you do IT for a firm and you leave them, they could be grumpy because they've lost a good person and maybe you're going to share clients and they're not quite clear about what the relationship's like. On what terms did you leave them? Did they send you business afterwards or how did that go? You know, I spent a year in a double life uh, and at the end of 2021 um, was when I made the decision to let Blue State know that this was going on. I think I had like 14 clients. I probably stretched it a little too far for my own sanity. I announced in like October, November of 2021 what we were doing. They were extremely supportive. I had been there for six years. I had a great deputy at the time under me, Chris, who ended up taking over my IT role. And as I did with them, same thing I, I did on Warren, which was like, I went to them with a plan and I said, here's what I think will work. I did the same thing. I said, here's my plan. You know, I'm going to transition out. Chris is going to transition in. I'm available as a contractor for a couple months if you just want a backstop. And they were very gracious. You know, my direct boss, Rob, who was great and I learned a ton from, you know, was grumpy about it, but because he had to deal with it. But Joe was really encouraging and was just like, yes, this is the right decision for you. What you're doing is something special. And I think a lot of organizations need this kind of help. I had him and, and that other guy I mentioned, Toby, who had originally hired me at my first job. And they both were just really encouraging. And I don't come from a business background. I don't come from a business family. I don't know any of the business side of things, but I got their encouragement and their blessing. And so I felt like I could do it. I just made that jump, took a pay cut because you lose your full-time pay and you got to make that up. And then just kind of, you know, was able to focus on it singularly, which, which really helped me, you know, over the last year, two years now, really grow it. So, well, and of course, Joe Rosepars had the experience of working in a presidential and then going out and started a company. Uh, with a couple partners. So he he had to be some somewhat supportive, I hope. Exactly. Yeah. No, he he's, continues to be extremely supportive and complimentary. And, you know, I try to uh, limit my Joe calls to when I really need the advice, but uh, he's always very gracious with his time. And, and yeah, has been a big fan from our sidelines. Sharing business didn't really happen. Like they work with just large organizations that we're even now not quite ready for. He was mentioning our name, and I'm sure there's a couple clients he sent our way that I don't even know about. So, so you 
when you form a company like that, even though you start out with the credentials of Blue State and Warren and, and Ocasio-Cortez, there's a decision to be made about who you will work with. How did you go about making a decision and what was it? Yeah, um, that was uh, that was something we uh, struggled with initially of like, I, I think still do, honestly, like we're still finding that line of like, who will we work with? Who won't we work with? What is even considered progressive? We want to position ourselves that way. But like everyone has a different understanding of what that even means. Everyone, even in the progressive world, as we know, has different political views and doesn't always agree. So that was early on was a big decision point for us. And we always tried to do it consensually among the group. We started out with four people. And uh, were those all Warren people? Uh, one was, and then one was Day Yi, who's now the CIO at Center for American Progress, CAP. He came from the transition team. And so I didn't directly know him. I had talked with the transition team about a potential working on their team. They had required me, if I was going to move forward, to drop all my freelance clients. They wouldn't allow that, understandably. And I made the decision not to do that because I had enough clients now where I saw the trajectory and I, it wasn't a good idea. But one of the people I sent them was Day. I was like, go talk to this person. He seems like he knows what he's doing. And so I ended up connecting with him after the transition team was over, as well as Natalia, who I worked with on the campaign. And that was like the four of us, me, Jess, Natalia, and Day were like the founding team of Personified when we officially started it. Did you continue in the same vein, which is sort of accepting clients by referral? Or did you start to like figure out how are we going to scale this thing, advertising your services, really working to create a growth company out of it? Yeah. So, I mean, we had a lot of decisions up front. I realized I didn't answer your last question, which is we, we had a lot of clients up front that were like, either ostensibly progressive or not progressive at all. And we needed to figure out, were we going to work with them in some limited capacity or not? There was a really big PR company who wanted to work with us. Even still, it would be a big contract for us. They were having a really bad experience with their IT provider, but we had realized they'd done PR for like big oil. And so I, Joe was one of my first calls. I was like, do you know these people? And would you work with them? And he was like, fuck no, please don't work with these people, <laughs> run away. So I had a couple gut checks, but we were fortunate enough, the referral business and the word of mouth really sent the same kind of organizations to us. And so I'd say for 95% of the conversations I've had with leads, like they're progressive orgs. They all talk, they all share resources, and it's very clear they're progressive oriented. We spent the first six months after we announced telling everyone, I told everyone I knew what I was doing. I went on LinkedIn, I messaged everyone, I asked for leads, you know, anything they could do to just like win a client every couple months and grow it a little bit. And the idea was just make a comfortable living and have a couple of people on hand and have a kind of small consultancy. And then around the end of Q1 2021, it all flipped. It was like... Now it was like three or four clients were reaching out in a given month. And there were months we onboarded four or five clients. We were getting sent RFPs and all of that. And it was a very, very uncomfortable period for me. I didn't know any of this business end. I was really just operating intuitively, trying to make what I thought was the right decision by you know us and the team. I just kept saying yes. And I just kept saying yes to these projects where in my mind on the call, I was thinking, I don't know how we're going to do this. Like I've never touched any of this stuff. But I was like, yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll assemble a team. And there were a couple of those projects and, and breakpoints where 
we said yes, we agreed, we signed a contract, and then we backfilled and figured out how to do it and hired people to support it and brought in contractors, whatever. Yeah, it was just kind of a natural scaling up through 2021 and most of 2022. I had no metrics. I had no benchmarks. I had no idea how to gauge growth, but I think we just closed our 60th client, which is crazy. And it's really just all a function of like our team continuing to agreeing to say yes to things and me continually saying yes to things and just like sustained growth. And, and How many people working for you now? We just made our 17th hire. We have two offers out. So yeah, we're a pretty large organization. We have dedicated teams to kind of all the disciplines. I'm finding myself less in the day-to-day work and more the higher level kind of crisis management is what I feel like my job over the last three months. So was there any challenge to pricing and salaries? There's probably certain going rates out there that would somewhat start dictating what do you charge, but do you charge hourly? Did you figure out how to do retainers for an organization that might come to you? What, what would they see in terms of what the deal was? And, and does that support the kind of talent you need to service them at the salary that you'd like to pay? We worked a lot through pricing. I had always been kind of keeping up in our industry. We call ourselves managed service providers or MSPs. That's the kind of industry term for the kind of company we run. I had done freelance, what you refer to as like break fix. Someone breaks something, they call it, you go and fix it and then bill them your hours. I knew that wasn't the model. I talked to another MSP today who's been doing this for 30 years and they've been doing the break fix model. And one thing I've read consistently online on the message boards and Reddit and all that is just like break fix doesn't work. Clients don't value your time. They'll only call you when something is critically messed up and it's just a lot of stress. So I knew hourly was not going to work for us. There were kind of two guiding principles as I was thinking about this. One was I knew we had to be on a retainer pricing because what I wanted to offer was really a complete package. And to this day, I generally decline clients who are like, can you offer us one slice of your offering or one service? The answer is no, because I don't feel great about offering one thing and not all of them, because it really is like a whole ecosystem that we manage. A lot of it's behind the scenes. A lot of clients don't get to see the day in, day out of what we're doing. And also like The indicator most clients have, which is like tickets opened, issues logged, things like that. I explained to them a lot of times works inversely. Like we're working towards no tickets. We want everything to run with no problem. And a lot of people, organizations measure, is their provider worth it based on how many tickets they're they're solving? So the one thing was I knew we wanted a complete offering. And another was like, I knew that what we were offering was trust. What we were selling to these organizations, still to this day, I haven't found, I have one company who kind of does the same thing, but it, you know, smaller shop. There's Langley Cyber, right? Yes. So Langley Cyber is a great example. And I love, love the Langley guys. We've worked closely on some stuff. They are security services. So they are really focused on security of organizations and incident response and 24 seven monitoring and all that, which we don't do. They don't do any of the IT stuff. And what I find organizations want help with is the tech support the administration of the systems, and most of all, devices and ordering computers and storing computers and all of that. Security companies won't touch any of that. They're like, go talk to an IT person about that. We won't do it. We gave a kind of more broad offering that incorporated IT and cybersecurity. But I always explain to clients, we're not 24-7. We're not monitoring at that level. But for most clients in the space, they don't need that at the organization size we're working with, which is like 
20 to 60 people. Like those, that's really more of a bigger enterprise game and the Ford foundations of the world, I think need that, but we're focused on kind of a smaller niche. So I was big on selling trust because you're giving these companies the keys to your castle. They have all your data. They have all your logins to your systems. And so we made a point to just kind of vet our hires and really pull people in who we knew were involved in the progressive space and wanted to be in the space. And so I've been really trying to sell trust with that vision of like, you don't have to worry about if we have someone alt-right on our staff, like intentionally hiring with that in mind because of the sensitivity of what we're doing. And so, um, you know, that's been a big part of, of our value proposition as well, I'd say. So it has worked out to sell these retainers because a lot of organizations, maybe you're just not serving them. A lot of them have trouble coming up with money for this kind of service. We just hired a director of partnerships because I'm realizing I'm, I'm still the full cycle salesperson and I'm doing a disservice because I'm always saying yes. Frequently, if it wasn't for Jess, I'd be underselling everything and I'd be like, what do you want to pay us? That's your retainer and we'll see you tomorrow when we're working for you. I found that an organization that doesn't want to pay for cybersecurity and IT, coincidentally, is also not the organization we really want to be working with. Those are organizations that are a race to the bottom, don't actually value data security and IT, don't really treat the industry with respect, generally harder to work with. We've been lucky that I think the nonprofits that we've worked with either receive grants specifically for cybersecurity and to work with us, or they work with the new venture funds and big fiscal sponsors of the world. And it's an easier sell because I think cybersecurity is top of mind. And we're going into a new era where the threats look different. It's not the same threat. No one is easily going to hack your Gmail anymore. It's about things like data retention policies and auto-deleting emails and reducing your surface area and focused on device security. We do a lot of personal security consulting with people's Gmails and, and personal accounts. Because again, it's all part of the same ecosystem. And so we've kind of blurred those lines, whereas other providers are really strict on their scope and focus. We try to just kind of speak the language a little more. I think that's made us successful too. I mean, is it hard to get your clients to do the sort of things that they have to, to be secure? There is a, a gradient. And so when we start working, especially with smaller orgs, they're really usually not doing anything. There's no threat detection. There's no password manager. They now have 2FA on for their Google or Microsoft. Generally upfront, the changes are pretty easy. I work with a lot of great people and they're very friendly. And so we do a lot of office hours and just working with users individually to kind of coach them through the basics. As you get kind of further down the roadmap, it does get harder because then you end up kind of butting against the functionality that people want like using the Mac mail app or Outlook on their phones. There are legitimate cybersecurity reasons to not be doing those things. And so explaining that rationale is one thing to the decision makers. And then it's another thing to have to face staff where you're essentially like the villain and you have to explain to them like why this is important for cybersecurity. But what I found because we work in the progressive space and because people are acutely aware of the risk, they'll groan about it, but they'll generally play ball. And we get very little pushback in terms of like legitimate security functionality that we're rolling out. Do you have political campaigns in your client list? Right now, just Senator Warren, Representative Ocasio-Cortez. There are uh, a couple exciting developments, nothing that has been signed off yet. So, But we are looking at how we can support just the general 2024 cycle and be helpful. And how about like party organizations? Oh, so no. We've spoken to the DNC. DNC 
understandably has some hesitancy about working with MSPs. I think, you know, there's been a colorful track record. Um, again, no one's fault that things happen. And, and we realize that companies like us take the rap when bad things happen. And that's just part of the risk inherent in the industry. One of the piece of it, advices I got from um, Roger Lau, who was the uh, campaign director on Warren, um, was that I should reach out to the state parties because the state parties tend to be the apparatus that need the support the most and have the you know the least amount of support in IT and cybersecurity. We haven't just because like they haven't reached out to us and we don't do outbound sales. Everyone comes to us; it's all referral based. Twenty twenty four, I do want to be a little more conscious to reach out to some of them, some of the bigger packs. I think like just making them aware of us. The idea is really like we're here and we're a partner in the space. So like even if you're not ready to work with us now, a year down the road when your budget changes, like we'd love to throw our hat in the ring. And I think that approach of just kind of setting ourselves up where they know we're a fair broker, we're not like upcharging them a crazy amount, our margins aren't insane. It's like taking your car to the mechanic that you trust. Like they know they're going to get a fair shake from us and a fair price. So I think that's a lot of what we've been doing up till now has just been positioning ourselves in the space and as political newbies, just getting our name out there, honestly. You mentioned that you like to hire for people skills. Do you train up your employees? What sort of training do you offer? How does that go over time? We have a pretty rigorous training, as rigorous and can be expected as a startup. I think part of the uh, hiring criteria as well is just like people who speak this language and have worked at other tech shops, especially ones where hires that we're giving any sort of client credentials to, like they need the bona fides to back that up and know that they've been trusted in organizations and been major contributors. So we are looking for that as well. But when they come in, I think the thing that we're getting people most acclimated to is just the world of political IT. It is a little quirky. It is a little different than what people are used to. Just kind of explaining the risks is big and hammering those in. The first couple of weeks are kind of mapped out as we really kind of burn the risk into people's heads of like, no, you should generally not be making values calls when people forward you emails being like, is this legit? Like that is not really an industry we want to be in. We want to give them the advice that we always give, which is like, if you're not expecting this email and you can't verify it, assume it's not legit. Don't click on anything. So those kind of practices and posture, I think is what we tr focus tr on uh, in terms of training the most. But beyond that, I find people have the tech skills like as we hire them because Again, we're not running like data centers. We're not running server farms. We're running Google Workspace, Slack, Zoom, Microsoft for a number of clients. And I think it's a different skill set and a little more intuitive that allows you to focus on like helping them with efficiencies rather than like the server's down. I'm not connecting to it. So it just looks a little bit different for us. Aside from like an email that's got something, some payload on it that you don't want, what other threats are you seeing in real life? The number one threat across the board that I think every organization in America is seeing right now is something called, it's an impersonation scam or what we refer to as a gift card scam, which it goes a little something like this. And I can tell you from Personified, because this happens to everyone at Personified within the first week of their employment, they affiliate with us on LinkedIn. They say, I got a new job at Personified. About a week after that, they get a text message sent to their phone saying, hey, it's Mike Murati. I need help from you. Do you uh, have a second to chat? I'm in a meeting, but I can text. Where that goes if you interact with them is they ask you to purchase like $800 in Apple or Google gift cards, 
some crazy story that like I have a client I need to gift and I'll pay you back the 800 plus a little bit of a bonus for your time. They're looking for, of course, the redemption codes on the gift cards. It, it of course, is not Mike Marotti on the phone. Once you send it to them, they've, they've disappeared. They are making billions of dollars in this industry. It is a booming industry. And the response we get from clients as they see this is like, how did they get our employee cell phone numbers? Like, we're breached internally. What they're doing is they are combing LinkedIn. They have a network of bot accounts that scrape LinkedIn for contact profiles. And if they can't get your cell phone number from your LinkedIn profile, which, by the way, to anyone listening, if you haven't changed this setting, anyone you connect with can see your cell phone number. So definitely change that. They can cross-reference the information they do have with the data breaches on the dark web. The mobile game developer Zynga got breached and they released like names, emails, and phone numbers. And even me, with access to a very, very small amount of tools, can search that database And I can generally 90% of the time find someone's personal phone number just from their name or email. They've built an incredible automated system to do this. And by texting and really sending no payload because there's no virus, there's no attachment, they're able to circumvent all organizational security controls and exploit their financially motivated attack. I'm really happy it's financially motivated when these attackers catch up with like using AI tools for generating like convincing copy and they start incorporating malicious payloads. That's something we're just like laser beam focused on is how to mitigate that threat because I suspect that's going to be the threat we see through 24 and probably the most effective digital attacks, some form of that impersonation scam. Yeah, it's one thing if they steal $800, it's another thing if they get into the leader of the organization's email and exploit that to make a difference in some election somewhere. Yeah, totally, totally. And and that's what we're focused on as well. I think infiltrators continue to be a concern of our clients, especially clients that interface with volunteers. The prime threat that I give is like, if you use Slack with your volunteers, you can't actually prevent anyone, especially a volunteer Slack from changing their name or picture. So the possibility of phishing on Slack is endless. Like you can just sign up for an account in some, you know, organization's public Slack, change your picture and name to impersonate the executive director, and then start causing chaos. And so we're training our clients on that threat. Again, the organizations like Project Veritas and copycat organizations that want to infiltrate, that's a lot of the risk they deal with. And thankfully, they're not looking to compromise systems. They're looking for sound clips or what have you. But We're still hyper laser focused on that threat because, again, IT looks different. It's less about like the server compromise and now more about operational security and setting your organization up with a good posture. I guess since I got a political podcast here, I should ask you about 2024, which you've alluded to some things that you worry about. But if you were going to guess what might make the headlines or have consequence in this election that's in your general area, what do you think might come up? What should people be aware of? With these cycles and these organizations, the looming and increasing threat, especially given the state the world is in currently, is the state-backed threat actors, the, the hacker groups that have the backing of foreign governments who clandestinely run their operation but are well-funded. These are organizations we've seen time and time again, I think most recently with Pegasus, spyware on iPhones, increasingly, you know, a device like an iPhone, which was considered bulletproof and unhackable, 
is now over the last year, you could have received a blank text message that if you were running the right software on your phone would have compromised your iPhone. I think we're going to increasingly see the pressure be turned up on what are called these zero day exploits, which are exploits that are largely unknown to the public, but are known by these groups. They're very highly sought after and they're used to execute these very focused attacks. That I think is going to continue to be what we see in 2024 because they're very effective. People can't generally detect them because they're unknown to everyone. That's part of the advice we're giving, especially to campaign principals, which is like, assume that your devices will be hacked. What would that look like for you if someone got access to your phone tomorrow? And really putting them in the mindset of limiting the surface area of what's on their device, what's even able to be stolen, 30 days of email ideally in their account and nothing more. Those kind of stances, which is like, if you get breached, minimizing the surface area and what is actually exposed. That's our focus. And I think we'll start to see a lot more of those zero days. We'll start to see a lot more impersonation. And then there's all sorts of emerging creative ways people are siphoning data. The one we most recently saw was after ChatGPT made the news, you had like hundreds of Google Chrome plugins popping up being like ChatGPT for the web and all of that. Most of them were malicious and designed to siphon data from web browsers and hijack cookies and things like that. Because Google has really focused on their account security as far as like logging into the account, people are coming up with all sorts of creative ways to sidestep that and kind of insert themselves into your environment to be able to establish a foothold and start to siphon data out that can be used to kind of further attacks that are targeted at, at individuals. I don't like to focus on this too much. It's kind of scary. <laughs> Certainly is, but you know, we're, we're here and someone has to do it. So we enjoy it to some extent. Do you think your business is much different than it would be if you had decided to pursue non-political accounts primarily? If I'm being completely honest, I don't think I would have had the wherewithal to carry on. Fully transparently running a company has been the hardest two and a half years of my life, you know, mental health wise, stress wise, managing all of this. It's very exciting at times to see the growth and see this idea that you had grow into something that is bigger than yourself. It also comes with a fair amount of, of stress and anxiety. And, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is just knowing and feeling that pressure of others relying on you for paychecks and growth and opportunities and all that. I really only credit my ability to stay on this track with working with the clients that we do. The nice thing about working in progressive politics is I find that generally the people are lovely. The experience you get working with like a healthcare company, which is like, I want this thing fixed now. People are generally like patient and understanding and really grateful for the support. And so both working with the progressive movement and just having that as like the fuel to keep going, coupled with the generally more lovely people they hire than like run-of-the-mill businesses is honestly what's kept me going. If I was just a run-of-the-mill MSP with no angle, working with lawyers and no shade to lawyers, they're lovely too. We have some of those clients, but working with law firms and healthcare and all that, I think it would have just burned me out because it's a really stressful track. It's my first time doing it. And so at the end of the day, even just since I started at work, Blue State, the, the political end and the progressive end is really what motivated me. So yeah, I do think it's a big part of why we're still doing it and continuing to grow it. Where do you want to take the company? So once you get a, a functioning business model and a set of live clients and, and uh, you know, hopefully loyal employees that are good at what they do, then the question becomes more strategic about what, what do you want to make this company into in the long run? 
I can start with the like the dream of most MSP owners, which is like build up the the company, build the client roster, build your like monthly recurring revenue, and then sell it to private equity. Like cash out, retire, go do something else, whatever. That path is obviously not going to work for us. We're not entertaining offers from private equity. Jess and I are still 100% owners from the equity standpoint. So I think a lot about this strategically. And I think like where there was initially like a thought of what would an exit look like? Like that's always appealing to a founder just as a light at the end of the tunnel. But with what we're doing, especially considering the business that we're winning from MSPs that are literally 100 times the size of us, like the last client we won work with an MSP that's a 1,000 people, which is mind-boggling to me, I increasingly see the opportunity for this kind of model of IT. And one of my concerns initially was like the progressive political ceiling. Like eventually we're going to have all the clients maybe in a, on a good day, and then that's it. There's nowhere else to go with it. I didn't realize up front like how high that ceiling is, how many of these organizations exist, And then you start to expand into nonprofits, which like have a progressive mission, maybe not the most progressive organizations, but doing good in the world, improving people's lives. Certainly nothing with a conservative bend that would be off the table, but there's an additional opportunity to just kind of expand more broadly into nonprofit IT. My focus right now is just continuing to grow it um, to, you know, month over month, scale up, hire more people. Um, you know, I think there's a world where we could be the MSP that are incorporating smaller MSPs into our practice. And what I want to do and kind of what my mission's been since the beginning is I want to be a pillar of the space. There was no IT firm dedicated to the left's political movement. Uh, they were working with all sorts of random MSPs who worked with all sorts of other clients. And I just want to be kind of that trusted pillar where like clients come, clients go, that's Okay. When they need IT and when they have the budget for IT, they know we're here. They come to us with projects. They come to us for advice. And I give a lot of free advice, too. I think that's part of it is just like, I want to be someone that people know they can trust. And I'm trying to build that team as well. That's really all I got right now is I want to continue to see this out and continue to just say yes to these opportunities that I think other MSPs would shy away from. Our cybersecurity insurance brokers, I assure you, do not like that approach of working with high-profile organizations, but it's necessary, and our team, all credit to them, is just doing some of the best work I've ever seen. So, you know, slow and steady. One of the movements that's affecting progressive organizations is the unionization of their employees, Uh, even small shops now, where especially among progressive staffs that are aligned ideologically with that. And you come from a household that is uh, favorable to the union thing, but it's complicated for a business owner sometimes to think about having a a group intervening between employee and owner. How do you think about that? That's a great question. That's something I thought about a lot up front, a conversation I had with Joe Rosebars, because Blue State unionized. And that was something he had to oversee. That was right at the end of my tenure there. Um, And I wasn't involved in the collective bargaining unit because I was considered management, but um, got to witness the process. And I think, um, you know, as an owner, (laughs) one of the things Joe said was was like, you know, you can't really tell your staff to unionize. That's not something an owner generally can, can convince their staff of. It usually doesn't come from there. We work with a lot of clients also with collective bargaining units, union agreements. We work a lot of times within an organization, CBA, which has a collective bargaining agreement, which had already been established prior to our engagement and leads to like interesting 
aspects that we need to work around, such as like some CBAs I've seen mandate that people use personal devices for their work and that they own their computers. But when you do that, you can't install any of that management or threat detection software on there because you can't do that on a personal device. So we've had to come up with creative ways to work around that. I digress. My position is like, you know, look, we're 17 people. We are really making our best effort. I, I don't proclaim to know anything and neither does Jess, but collectively we're making our best effort to incorporate staff feedback, to orient ourselves based on that staff feedback and build kind of a consensus among our team of like, we're moving in the right direction. We're paying people what they deserve to be paid. We're all transparent about salary bans and all that. And so I think for now, like everyone's happy. There probably isn't a, a need to unionize because I think if anything, it may decrease the working conditions as you have to actually negotiate things in writing. I am cognizant that at some point, staff don't agree on what's right. And so there's a little bit of uh, the lack of consensus internally of like, one of the things primarily, for example, we're working on right now is, is what we really want to get to a four-day work week. But we're realizing there are real business barriers to doing so, especially with an MSP that's essentially on 24-7, 365. So we're having that conversation with the team. We're working with that feedback. We're, we're trying to align there. There will be a number of those decision points. And so I see a future where there is that kind of disconnect internally and like we're just for whatever business reasons that exist not able to meet all of those requirements and so that i think is when the union conversation comes in of course i'm never gonna try to union bus shut that down at this point we're just about like come to us with concerns and we've done we've been able to kind of address those concerns but um you know we're open i i want staff to feel like this is a good place to work and be passionate about working here and if that takes unionization then then so be it what should I have asked you that I haven't? I think the question I was expecting was like the war stories, which I was prepared to not answer because I because I can't. Those are some of the funnest things. I you know wish I could share those, especially through the presidential cycle of just seeing all the absolutely insane ways that things can go down. It's really interesting to work in this space. It's really interesting from my experience as a political newbie, working with people who have been in this space for 30 plus years. And everyone, what I felt like was a really gate-kept community of people really ended up turning out to be lovely and open and welcoming. And so I'm just grateful to be in that. And that's kind of what motivates me at the end of the day is just getting to work with the people that I get to work with. It's really, really nice. Well, it's a nice story. I'm glad you're meeting with success so far. I hope you continue to serve your clients well. Anything else you want to say? No, just thank you so much for having me. You reaching out uh, is a real milestone for me personally. My very first podcast, I'm very flattered and also very starstruck by the slate of people you've had on your show. So again, yeah, just really appreciate you reaching out and thanks for what you do. Thank you. That was Mike. He is at personified.tech. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.